This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. This is the last chapter in the series, Getting Away with Murder. If you've listened to the first two episodes in this series, you may have noticed a common denominator in these cases, where a person responsible for the tragic death of another nevertheless is not held criminally accountable. In both cases and others that I have researched, the person who can get away scot-free is either wealthy, holds power of some sort, or both. In this last case, I'll share with you that the responsible party is wealthy and comes from a politically influential family. Edward Teddy Kennedy had served as a United States Senator for seven years when he was involved in a tragic car accident that took a woman's life. Even though his behavior immediately after the crash was clearly negligent at best and a self-serving cover-up at worst, Kennedy's name and political resume helped him escape scrutiny. The matter was quickly closed. But the scandal would follow him throughout his life and career, with many believing he'd gotten away with murder. This is the case of Senator Ted Kennedy and what would be called the Chappaquiddick Incident. Friday, July 18, 1969, kicked off Regatta Weekend on Martha's Vineyard. Martha's Vineyard, an island located just south of Cape Cod, Massachusetts, a popular tourist destination for beachgoers, yachtsmen and women, and those looking for a summer vacation rental. The regatta, or yacht race, was being held this July weekend. People began arriving earlier in the week to participate, or observe the race organized each year, by the Edgartown Yacht Club. Edward Teddy Kennedy arrived on the island on Friday afternoon to race his yacht, the Victura, in the regatta. Kennedy, brother to President John F. Kennedy, had served as U.S. Senator from Massachusetts since 1962. He had been attending and racing in the Edgartown regatta since the mid-1960s. He had missed the race the previous year when his brother Robert F. Kennedy was cut down by an assassin's bullet on the eve of his presumptive victory to become the Democratic Party's candidate for the next president of the United States. Bobby Kennedy's murder had come less than five years after John F. Kennedy was shot and killed in Dallas, Texas. JFK had served just a little over 1,000 days as the 35th president of the United States at the time of his assassination. So the Kennedy family had experienced some very dark days in the recent past. That summer, they were also watching the family patriarch, Joseph Kennedy, struggle in poor health after suffering two strokes. His health declined further after the death of his son, Bobby, the family's bright shining hope after JFK's assassination. Joe Kennedy Jr., the Kennedy's firstborn, had been killed in action while serving as a Navy officer during World War II. Joe Kennedy Sr. was now bedridden at his home in Hyannisport, Massachusetts. He'd been left unable to speak as a result of the stroke. Ted Kennedy had been looking forward to this weekend on Martha's Vineyard to escape from these multiple tragedies, but also to distract himself from the great responsibility he now carried. As the youngest and last son of the Kennedy family, Ted knew that his father looked to him to fulfill the political ambition of another Kennedy son occupying the White House. Ted Kennedy was already said to be a favorite for the upcoming 1972 presidential election. 37-year-old Teddy Kennedy was known as a man who loved to party. He was said to be a drinker, 
and this weekend would be no exception. Kennedy's cousin, Joey Gargan, was in charge of making sure the senator had a good time before, during, and after the regatta. Gargan had already seen to it that several motel rooms were rented for Kennedy and his guests in Edgartown. He'd also rented a cottage on a small island just across a 150-yard channel from Edgartown at the southeast edge of Martha's Vineyard. Chappaquiddick Island, accessible only by way of a four-minute ferry ride, was just five miles long and three miles wide. For Kennedy, it was expected to be a busy weekend. He was scheduled to race his boat on both Friday and Saturday afternoons. On Friday and Saturday evenings, Kennedy was to attend private parties. The first one, on Friday night, was being hosted by Joey Gargan and Kennedy himself in a rented cottage on Chappaquiddick Island. It was said to be a thank-you party for a group of a half a dozen young women who had previously worked on Bobby Kennedy's campaign. On Thursday the 17th, the women began arriving on Martha's Vineyard. Susan Tannenbaum, Esther Newberg, Rosemary Keogh, and Mary Jo Kopechny arrived that afternoon. Sisters Mary Ellen and Nance Lyon would come the next day. All were in their 20s and single. They had been collectively called the Boiler Room Girls by Bobby Kennedy because their base of operations for his campaign was in a windowless basement room. Senator Ted Kennedy also arrived on Martha's Vineyard that day, flying in around noon. He was picked up at the airport by his driver, 63-year-old Jack Crimmins, and driven to the ferry. Crimmins had driven in Kennedy's car to the island a few days earlier to prepare for the senator's arrival. He was also tasked with picking up provisions for the party, including a supply of liquor, and taking it to the cottage. Kennedy made a stop at the Shiretown Inn in Edgartown to change his clothes and then met up with the women and his cousin Joey. They were enjoying time at the beach, just down the road from the cottage on Chappaquiddick. After about an hour, Kennedy left to sail in the regatta. During the race, Kennedy drank with his sailing buddies. The Victoria finished in ninth place. Afterward, Kennedy had more drinks, rum and coke, and beer with some friends before he was driven back to the inn to change for the party. He arrived at the cottage around 7 p.m., where the party had already begun. The ferry operator who'd taken him across the channel from Edgartown to Chappaquiddick was the last person to report seeing the senator until after 2 a.m. on Saturday morning. What happened in between would be shrouded in mystery, and Kennedy's actions that night would sink his presidential aspirations. Some would even say he got away with murder. I'm going to jump forward in time from the evening of Friday, July 18, 1969, when Kennedy arrived at the party on Chappaquiddick, until 2.30 a.m. when he was next seen at his hotel in Edgartown. I'll then piece together the details of that night, as they were later described by various witnesses. At 2.30 in the morning on Saturday the 19th, the manager of the Shiretown Inn in Edgartown witnessed the senator coming down the stairs from his room. He would later describe Kennedy as appearing distressed. The manager asked if he could be of service, and Kennedy complained of being woken by a noisy party next door to his room. The manager said he'd take care of it, and Kennedy returned upstairs. He would later note to investigators that Kennedy was dressed in a suit jacket and slacks, and didn't look like someone who'd been asleep and awakened by a loud party. Several hours later, between 6 and 7 a.m., the inn's desk clerk saw Kennedy in the lobby. He was clean-shaven and dressed in yachting clothes, as described by the clerk. He asked the clerk to borrow some change to make phone calls. 
there was a payphone located in front of the inn. The senator explained he left his wallet upstairs and would pay him back when he retrieved it. The clerk gave him the change, and Kennedy went outside to make his phone calls. It was almost 8 a.m. when the clerk saw Kennedy re-enter the hotel. A few minutes later, he walked back to the desk and paid back the money he had borrowed. Kennedy left the inn and went to a side alley that separated the Shiretown Inn from another motel. He met up with two friends, Ross Richards and Stan Moore. Richards' wife was also staying at the hotel. She would later report she'd been surprised to see Kennedy, quote, all dressed up so early in the morning on a Saturday. Mrs. Richards said Kennedy's cousin, Joey Gargan, arrived soon after the senator and called to him somewhat impatiently. He was with another man she didn't recognize. She described both men as soaking wet. Gargan told Kennedy he needed to speak to him right away. She heard him say sternly to Kennedy, get in here. Mrs. Richards was surprised to hear him speak to the senator so aggressively. Kennedy, Gargan, and the third man, later identified as Paul Markham, a former U.S. attorney now serving as an advisor to Kennedy, spent about 30 minutes in the room together. Around the same time, a resident of Chappaquiddick, Pierre Malm, reported seeing a car submerged upside down in the pond off the side of a narrow wooden bridge. He called the Edgartown police and reported this discovery. Minutes later, Edgartown Police Chief Jim Arena arrived. He saw that the car was submerged in about six feet of water, its two back wheels slightly visible at the top of the water. A scuba diver was requested and arrived soon after. Another officer called in the license plates of the vehicle. They discovered the car was registered to Senator Edward Kennedy. The diver reported the discovery of a woman's body inside the car. Chief Arena called the local medical examiner and John Farrar, head of the county search and rescue team. Farrar went to work and soon pulled the body of a young blonde woman from the car. A handbag was found inside the back seat with ID in the name of Rosemary Keough. Bob Mola, the inspector for the Massachusetts Registry of Motor Vehicles, arrived next. It was his job to investigate all vehicle accidents that involved fatalities. While all this was taking place, Ted Kennedy had taken the ferry back to Chappaquiddick. It was now about 9 a.m., when the ferry reached the landing, Kennedy went to a payphone and began making more calls. A man named Tony Betancourt, a resident of the island, was sent to the ferry landing by the police chief to wait for the medical examiner and bring him to the crash site. Betancourt had learned from Marina that Senator Kennedy was the car's registered owner. So he was surprised to find the senator calmly making phone calls. Betancourt assumed he hadn't heard the news. Approaching Kennedy, Betancourt said, Senator, do you know there was a girl found dead in your car? Kennedy didn't reply. Betancourt then asked if he needed a ride to the bridge. Kennedy said no and told him he wasn't going to the accident site, but planned to go into town. Kennedy, Joey Gargan, and Paul Markham stayed by the ferry landing. They watched the ferry bring over a tow truck and then a hearse. At one point, the ferry captain approached Kennedy and asked him if he knew what had happened. Markham answered for him, saying yes, the senator was aware of the situation. At about 9.45 a.m., Kennedy walked into town and entered the police station. Neither the police chief nor any other officer had yet spoken to him. Arena and the other officers were still occupied at the crash site. In the station, Kennedy asked to use the front desk phone. Wanting to accommodate the senator, the front desk officer instead led him into the chief's office where he said he could make his phone calls in private. 
It would later be determined that Kennedy made five phone calls from the police chief's office. At one point, the desk clerk heard him say, well, we'll have to notify her parents. Upon learning that Kennedy was at the station, the chief called to speak to him. Arena informed him his vehicle had been involved in an accident and that a woman had died. Kennedy replied, I know. He then said he wanted to speak with the chief in person and told him to meet him at the station. When Arena arrived, Kennedy, much to his surprise, informed him he had been driving the vehicle when it crashed into the pond. Another startling revelation was that Kennedy said the dead woman was not Rosemary Keough, but Mary Jo Kopechny. The senator told Arena he'd already called her parents, told them about the accident, and informed them that Mary Jo had been killed. Ted Kennedy, used to wielding power as a senator, appeared to be calling the shots. The police chief appeared to be allowing him to do so. He next told the chief he needed undisturbed time to write out his account of the accident. He also asked the chief not to let his car be towed through town, saying he didn't want people to observe this and, quote, make a big thing out of it. When Kennedy completed writing his statement, Paul Markham turned it over to the chief, but asked him to hold it at Kennedy's request. Kennedy wanted to speak to his family attorney, Burke Marshall, first. Arena agreed to do so before reading Kennedy his Miranda rights. Soon after this, Bob Mola, the inspector from the Motor Registry Department, arrived to question Kennedy. He asked for his driver's license, but Kennedy said he didn't have it. His license, along with his wallet, had, quote, been misplaced. Mola read through Kennedy's written statement and asked some follow-up questions. Kennedy refused to answer, stating he would say no more until after consulting with his attorney. Ted Kennedy was not arrested, nor was he detained. He was not asked if he'd been drinking before the accident and was not administered a sobriety test. The senator said he needed to return to Hyannisport to meet with his attorney. Inspector Mola offered to drive Kennedy, Joey Gargan, and Paul Markham to the airport. During the drive, Mola reported smelling alcohol coming off all three men. He asked Kennedy if he'd been drinking, to which Kennedy snapped, I already told you there will be no more questions. Reaching the mainland, Kennedy returned to his family home in Hyannisport. Inspector Bob Mola had not learned much from Kennedy about the details of the accident. After returning from the airport, Mola went to the funeral home where Mary Jo Kopechny's body had been taken. He was informed that the body had already been shipped off the island and back to her home state of Pennsylvania for burial. The chief medical examiner was out of town that weekend, so an associate medical examiner had filled in for him. Within minutes of arriving at the accident site, he pronounced Mary Jo's cause of death as drowning. He didn't remove her clothing or even turn the body over to look at the back. He did not order an autopsy. Her body was immediately taken to the funeral home to be embalmed. At Hyannisport, Kennedy and his advisors quickly launched into damage control. No less than seven lawyers were hired to handle every detail from that moment forward, reviewing Kennedy's statement, deciding what questions they would and wouldn't answer, and getting the details of Kennedy's story straight. The other female guests who'd attended the party were whisked off the island and given instructions by the Kennedy family attorney, Burke Marshall, not to speak with anyone either publicly or privately about that night. What Kennedy and his advisors didn't do was contact the police chief in a timely manner. Chief Arena was under increasing pressure by the press and the public to provide information about the accident 
and the senator's role in it. By mid-afternoon on Sunday, more than 24 hours after the accident, Arena could hold off the press no longer and released Kennedy's statement. It read, On July 18, 1969, at approximately 11.15 p.m. in Chappaquiddick, Martha's Vineyard, Massachusetts, I was driving my car on Main Street on my way to get the ferry back to Edgartown. I was unfamiliar with the road and turned right onto Dyke Road instead of bearing hard left on Main Street. After proceeding for approximately one half mile on Dyke Road, I descended a hill and came upon a narrow bridge. The car went off the side of the bridge. There was one passenger with me, one Miss Mary. Here Kennedy just drew a line. He did not know how to spell Mary Jo's last name. A former secretary of my brother, Senator Robert Kennedy. The car turned over and sank into the water and landed with the roof resting on the bottom. I attempted to open the door and the window of the car, but have no recollection of how I got out of the car. I came to the surface and then repeatedly dove down to the car in an attempt to see if the passenger was still in the car. I was unsuccessful in the attempt. I was exhausted and in a state of shock. I recall walking back to where my friends were eating. There was a car parked in front of the cottage, and I climbed into the back seat. I then asked for someone to bring me back to Edgartown. I remember walking around for a period of time, and then going back to my hotel room. When I fully realized what had happened this morning, I immediately contacted the police. At barely 250 words, the brief statement made no mention of the party, of alcohol having been consumed, or the rate of speed Kennedy had been driving when his car, quote, went off the side of the bridge. It left more questions than provided answers. Joseph and Gwen Kopechny, Mary Jo's parents, were contacted by the press. The Kopechnys said that they also didn't have any real information. All they knew was that their daughter had been in a reunion with some other girls and had been in a car accident. This was the first time they'd heard that the senator had attended the same party. News reports stated that the majority of the people in attendance were young single women. They also reported that Kennedy's wife, Joan, had not been in attendance. The optics were bad for the senator, who had failed to mention either of these details in his statement. His call to Mary Jo's parents had also been light on details. He'd simply told the Kopechnys that there had been an accident and that their daughter was dead. He didn't even mention that he had been the one behind the wheel. After Kennedy returned to Hyannisport, both his wife Joan and sister-in-law Ethel, the widow of Bobby Kennedy, called Mary Jo's mother to offer their condolences. Gwen Kopechny seemed very impressed by Ethel Kennedy. Ethel tried to help us so much, she would later remark to reporters. But reporters questioned why the senator had taken so long to report the accident. Kennedy said he'd been driving to the ferry with Mary Jo just after 11 p.m., and the accident occurred minutes later. But the car wasn't discovered until after 8 a.m. the next morning, and Kennedy did not arrive at the police station until almost 10. These are questions the police chief himself should have been asking. Instead, Arena appeared to come up with a plausible explanation for Kennedy's baffling behavior. He told reporters that, quote, Kennedy must have been in a state of shock after the accident, end quote. Arena, it should be pointed out, had never asked the senator if he'd been drinking that night. However, witnesses to the events of Friday, July 18th, began coming forward. This information provided to police and the press would call Kennedy's story into question.
A house was located on Dyke Road, no more than 500 feet from where Kennedy's car plunged into the water. A woman who was home that evening reported hearing a car going, quote, faster than usual around midnight. She said she'd been up late that Friday evening and had her lights on well past midnight. Kennedy said he'd left with Mary Jo just after 11 p.m. The reason he did so, he claimed, was that they were trying to make the last ferry across the channel and back to Edgartown, which stopped running at midnight. He stated that instead of turning left in the direction of the ferry landing, he had mistakenly turned right. This would have led him to a small isolated beach by way of a narrow wooden bridge. The bridge measured only ten and a half feet wide and had no guardrails. He was unfamiliar with the area, Kennedy said, and this caused him to drive off the wooden bridge and crash into the pond. There were at least two glaring problems with Kennedy's account. The first was Kennedy's claim that he'd turned in the wrong direction down Dyke Road, believing he was driving toward the ferry crossing. Kennedy would have been driving on a paved road if he were headed toward the ferry. In the other direction was a bumpy, unpaved dirt road. If he'd turned right, as he claimed, he would have driven for a half mile down this road before reaching the bridge. It was virtually impossible, residents said, for someone to mistake that road for the one leading to the ferry, even in the dark especially driving for a full half mile or more. The second problem with his story was the timeline. Kennedy's claim that he and Mary Jo had left the party just after 11 p.m. could not have been accurate if witnesses were to be believed. The homeowner who reported hearing a car drive past her house in the direction of the bridge said the time had been around midnight. This was at least an hour later than Kennedy reported leaving the party. One other witness was even more sure of the time Kennedy was on the road that night. A deputy sheriff named Christopher Look had worked a security job at the Regatta Club dance on the night of the accident. His scheduled shift was from 8 p.m. until 12.30 a.m. When his shift ended, he was taken across the channel in the yacht's launch. His car was parked near the ferry launch on the Chappaquiddick side, and he began his drive home at about 12.35 a.m. Five minutes later, he was driving down Dyke Road when he said he saw headlights approaching. As the car passed, he could see a man behind the steering wheel, a woman in the passenger seat, and possibly another person in the back seat. He could only make out a shadow, so he wasn't certain about the third passenger. He observed the car turn off onto a dirt path that he knew led nowhere. The officer thought the driver must have realized he'd made a wrong turn because the vehicle's brake lights came on. The car moved in reverse back toward the main road. Officer Look stopped and got out of his car to approach the vehicle. He was going to ask the driver if he was lost or needed directions. Suddenly, the car turned around and began driving back in the direction it had come from. The officer saw it speed down Dyke Road and toward the bridge. Officer Look was still in his police uniform and wondered if this was what spooked the driver to reverse his course. The next morning, the officer learned about the car found submerged in the pond and went to the scene. He recognized the car being pulled from the water as the same vehicle he'd seen the night before. He reported that he'd come upon the vehicle around 12.40 a.m., a full 90 minutes later than Kennedy stated he left the party. If the officer was correct about the time, and because his shift ended exactly at 12.30, we can be almost certain he was, Kennedy could not have been driving Mary Jo to the ferry as he claimed. He would have been well aware that it stopped running at midnight. So then, where was he going? Some believe that an intoxicated Ted Kennedy left the party with Mary Jo Kopechny, possibly for a late-night tryst on the deserted beach. But having been drinking since early that afternoon, 
he drove recklessly, causing the accident that took the young woman's life. The car had plunged into the water and landed on its roof. This indicated to Inspector Mola that Kennedy was driving at a high rate of speed when he went off the road. He based his conclusions on the fact that the car landed upside down and backwards in the pond. It was found 23 feet forward and 5 feet off the right side of the bridge. As more details trickled in about before and after the accident, some began to believe Kennedy's responsibility in Mary Jo's death was even greater than it first appeared. The diver summoned to the scene of the accident to determine if anyone was inside the vehicle reported that Mary Jo's body was lying in a, quote, very conscious position, end quote. Her head was up by the floorboard, which were now above her in the upside-down vehicle. It was speculated that Mary Jo attempted to keep her head above the water as long as possible before the car was completely submerged. If this is true, Mary Jo may have been saved if Ted Kennedy had immediately gone for help. And what if Kennedy's assertion that he had attempted several times to dive into the water to see if Mary Jo was still in the car? Kennedy stated that after he could not find her, he walked back to, quote, where his friends were eating. He deliberately omitted the word party or any mention of alcohol being consumed. He claimed he was in a state of shock from that point until he woke the next morning. He said he then immediately called the police. But if he had the presence of mind to dive into the water more than once to try and rescue Mary Jo, why then did he walk past not just one house, where we've already established lights were still on and easily visible from the road, but walked by three houses without stopping to ask for help? There were three homes in between the bridge and the cottage Kennedy returned to that night. We also know that he was back in his room at the Shire Town Inn in Edgartown by 2.30 a.m. when the hotel clerk spoke with him in the lobby. Between 6 and 7 a.m., the clerk saw Kennedy in the lobby again. This time, he was clean-shaven and dressed in different clothes. Although Kennedy claimed he had immediately phoned the police upon regaining his senses the next morning, telephone records show that he made no less than a dozen phone calls before arriving at the police department. Most of these were to his lawyers and advisors. It appears that as a member of an important political family and a U.S. senator, Kennedy was spared from potentially embarrassing questions by the police. Questions like, why was a married senator driving alone with a young single woman in the wee hours of the morning? Or how much had he been drinking that night and did it contribute to the death of his passenger? Or why didn't he immediately seek out help to save Mary Jo? And finally, why did it take a full 10 hours before he reported the accident? Even the press at first handled the senator with kid gloves. Initial newspaper reports portrayed Kennedy as the other victim of the tragic accident. One headline read, Senator wanders in days for hours. Kennedy was described sympathetically as, quote, the only surviving brother of a family marked by tragedy. Another report stated that Kennedy had narrowly escaped death. But the public was not as sympathetic. They wanted answers, and the chief of police was put on the hot seat to provide them. Why hadn't the medical examiner conducted a more thorough examination of the body? Arena explained that the chief medical examiner was off duty that weekend, and his assistant had determined drowning as the cause of death. The medical examiner was also questioned. He was asked why he had not sought to determine Mary Jo's time of death. He snapped at reporters that he was, quote, not a pathologist. 
Chief Arena, no doubt feeling pressured to hold the senator in some way responsible, filed a complaint on Monday, July 21st, but only charged him with leaving the scene of an accident. The special prosecutor for the county also appeared to minimize Kennedy's responsibility. He told the press the senator was, quote, driving with extreme caution that night, a statement that directly contradicted the motor vehicle inspector's findings. On Thursday the 24th, Kennedy appeared in court and pled guilty to leaving the scene of an accident. The judge sentenced him to two months in jail and then immediately suspended the sentence, saying that the defendant had, quote, already been and will continue to be punished far beyond anything this court could impose. That night, Kennedy delivered an address to the public. It was televised live from the Kennedy compound at Hyannisport. Millions of people tuned in during 7 p.m. primetime television as Kennedy finally attempted to explain his actions on the night of July 18th. My fellow citizens, he began, I have requested this opportunity to talk to the people of Massachusetts about the tragedy which happened last Friday evening. This morning, I entered a plea of guilty to the charge of leaving the scene of an accident. Prior to my appearance in court, it would have been improper for me to comment on these matters, but tonight I am free to tell you what happened and to say what it means to me. On the weekend of July 18th, I was on Martha's Vineyard Island participating with my nephew, Joe Kennedy, as for 30 years my family has participated in the annual Edgartown Sailing Regatta. Only reasons of health prevented my wife from accompanying me. On Chappaquiddick Island, off Martha's Vineyard, I attended on Friday evening, July 18th, a cookout I had encouraged and helped sponsor for a devoted group of Kennedy campaign secretaries. When I left the party around 11.15 p.m., I was accompanied by one of these girls, Miss Mary Jo Kopechny. Mary Jo was one of the most devoted members of the staff of Senator Robert Kennedy. She worked for him for four years and was broken up over his death. For this reason, and because she was such a gentle, kind, and idealistic person, all of us tried to help her feel that she still had a home with the Kennedy family. There is no truth, no truth whatever, to the widely circulated suspicions of immoral conduct that have been leveled at my behavior and hers regarding that evening. There has never been a private relationship between us of any kind. I know of nothing in Mary Jo's conduct on that or any other occasion. The same is true of the other girls at that party that would lend any substance to such ugly speculation about their character. Nor was I driving under the influence of liquor. Little over a mile away, the car that I was driving on an unlit road went off a narrow bridge, which had no guardrails and was built on a left angle to the road. The car overturned in a deep pond and immediately filled with water. I remember thinking as the cold water rushed in around my head that I was for certain drowning. Then water entered my lungs and I actually felt the sensation of drowning. But somehow, I struggled to the surface alive. I made immediate and repeated efforts to save Mary Jo by diving into the strong and murky current, but succeeded only in increasing my state of utter exhaustion and alarm. My conduct and conversations during the next several hours, to the extent that I can remember them, make no sense to me at all. Although my doctors informed me that I suffered a cerebral concussion as well as shock, I do not seek to escape responsibility for my actions by placing the blame either in the physical, emotional trauma brought on by the accident or on anyone else. I regard as indefensible the fact that I did not report the accident to the police immediately, 
Instead of looking directly for a telephone after lying exhausted on the grass for an undetermined time, I walked back to the cottage where the party was being held and requested the help of two friends, my cousin Joseph Gargan and Paul Markham, and directed them to return immediately to the scene with me. This was sometime after midnight, in order to undertake a new effort to dive down and locate Miss Kopechny. Their strenuous efforts, undertaken at some risk to their own lives, also proved futile. All kinds of scrambled thoughts, all of them confused, some of them irrational, many of them which I cannot recall, and some of which I would not have seriously entertained under normal circumstances, went through my mind during this period. They were reflected in the various inexplicable, inconsistent, and inconclusive things I said and did, including such questions as whether the girl might still be alive somewhere out of that immediate area, whether some awful curse did actually hang over all the Kennedys, whether there was some justifiable reason for me to doubt what had happened and to delay my report, whether somehow the awful weight of this incredible incident might in some way pass from my shoulders. I was overcome, I am frank to say, by a jumble of emotions, grief, fear, doubt, exhaustion, panic, confusion, and shock. Instructing Gargan and Markham not to alarm Mary Jo's friends that night, I had them take me to the ferry crossing. The ferry having shut down for the night, I suddenly jumped into the water and impulsively swam across, nearly drowning once again in the effort, and returned to my hotel about 2 a.m. and collapsed in my room. I remember going out at one point and saying something to the room clerk. In the morning, with my mind somewhat more lucid, I made an effort to call a family legal advisor, Burke Marshall, from a public telephone on the Chappaquiddick side of the ferry, and then belatedly reported the accident to the Martha's Vineyard Police. Today, as I mentioned, I feel morally obligated to plead guilty to the charge of leaving the scene of an accident. No words on my part can possibly express the terrible pain and suffering I feel over this tragic incident. This last week has been an agonizing one for me and for the members of my family, and the grief we feel over the loss of a wonderful friend will remain with us for the rest of our lives. These events, the publicity, innuendo, and whispers which have surrounded them, and my admission of guilt this morning, raise the question in my mind of whether my standing among the people of my state has been so impaired that I should resign my seat in the United States Senate. If at any time the citizens of Massachusetts should lack confidence in their senator's character or his ability, with or without justification, he could not, in my opinion, adequately perform his duties and should not continue in office. The people of this state, the state which sent John Quincy Adams, Daniel Webster, Charles Sumner, Henry Cabot Lodge, and John Kennedy to the United States Senate, are entitled to representation in that body by men who inspire their utmost confidence. For this reason, I would understand full well why some might think it's right for me to resign. For me, this will be a difficult decision to make. It has been seven years since my first election to the Senate. You and I share many memories. Some of them have been glorious. Some have been very sad. The opportunity to work with you and serve Massachusetts has made my life worthwhile. And so I ask you tonight, people of Massachusetts, to think this through with me. In facing this decision, I seek your advice and opinion. In making it, I seek your prayers. For this is the decision that I will have finally to make on my own. At the end of his statement, Kennedy quotes from Profiles and Courage, his brother John F. Kennedy's book published in 1956. Quote, it has been written, a man does what he must in spite of obstacles and dangers and pressures. 
and that is the basis of all human morality. Whatever may be the sacrifices he faces if he follows his conscience, the loss of his friends, his fortune, his contentment, even the esteem of his fellow man, each man must decide for himself the course he will follow. The stories of past courage cannot supply courage itself. For this, each man must look into his own soul. I pray that I have the courage to make the right decision. Whatever is decided, whatever the future holds for me, I hope that I shall be able to put this most recent tragedy behind me and make some future contribution to our state and mankind, whether it be in public or private life. Thank you and good night. On July 30, 1969, less than two weeks after the accident, Ted Kennedy returned to his duties in Washington, D.C. It seemed as if the matter would simply be dropped and Kennedy would go back to life as usual. But on the same day, the district attorney announced his decision to reopen the case. He was seeking to impound the car and examine it for evidence and stated he would also conduct a formal inquest into Mary Jo Kopechny's cause of death. In order to do so, he was requesting a court order to have Mary Jo's body exhumed. Mary Jo's parents would have to agree to the exhumation, the judge decided. The Kopechnys had originally asked for an autopsy to be conducted on their daughter. Gwen Kopechny told reporters she wanted to, quote, restore her daughter's reputation. As some reports had suggested that Mary Jo was a frequent partier and had been drinking heavily that night. To add insult to injury, the medical examiner had released Mary Jo's blood alcohol content to the press. It was recorded at .08, which was not above the level of legal intoxication at that time. Why they decided to release this information is unknown, since it was irrelevant to the case. It was Kennedy who was behind the wheel of the car. He, however, had not been administered a blood alcohol test. Investigators said too much time had passed between the accident and it being reported to get an accurate reading. The Kopechnys, upset that their daughter's name was being sullied in the press, considered having Mary Jo's body exhumed and her cause of death more thoroughly investigated. But after Senator Kennedy's televised public address, Gwen Kopechny said she was satisfied with his account of events. Mary Jo's parents would ultimately decide not to allow an exhumation and the DA's request for a court order was denied. In January of 1970, a formal inquest to determine fault in Mary Jo Kopechny's death was held. This inquest, held in Edgartown and kept secret at the time, determined that there was probable cause that Kennedy negligently operated his vehicle and contributed to Mary Jo's death. A warrant could have been issued for the senator's arrest, but because the DA had made no recommendation for criminal prosecution in the case, the judge declined to take the matter any further, and the case was closed. It was later reported that the car Mary Jo Kopechny had died in was taken to an auto compactor and crushed. It was also later revealed that the clothes she was wearing when she drowned were burned. Although not held criminally liable for Mary Jo Kopechny's death, Ted Kennedy still suffered the consequences of his actions on that fateful night. Once believed to be the Democratic hopeful to win the next presidential primary, Kennedy instead sat out the 1972 election and focused on holding on to his Senate seat instead. He was re-elected to the Senate in 1970, but received more than a half a million fewer votes than he had in 1964. 
Kennedy made a bid for the presidency in 1980, seeking the Democratic Party nomination against the incumbent president, Jimmy Carter. However, the Chappaquiddick incident, as it came to be known, became a point of discussion once again during his campaign. The public thought Kennedy had been let off the hook due to his money and power, and they were not so quick to forgive or to forget. As a candidate, Kennedy began receiving anonymous threats. Of course, as the brother of two slain political figures, these threats were taken seriously. He was even advised to wear a bulletproof vest during a St. Patrick's Day parade in Chicago. As he was driven along the parade route, angry hecklers shouted at him, Where's Mary Jo? Kennedy continued his campaign all the way up to the Democratic National Convention, where he finally withdrew, having won only 10 presidential primaries to Carter's 24. He remained in the Senate for almost 47 years. He served as the Senate Majority Whip from 1969 to 1971, was chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee from 1979 to 1981, and chair of the Senate Health Committee from 2007 to 2009. Ted Kennedy was a popular and influential senator, and his endorsement of Barack Obama for president in 2008 was seen as significant. In May 2008, Kennedy suffered a seizure and was diagnosed with brain cancer. Although weak and frail, still serving in the Senate at age 77, Kennedy insisted on attending Barack Obama's inauguration. During the luncheon immediately following the inauguration ceremony, Kennedy suffered a seizure and was taken away by ambulance. President Obama was caught live on camera displaying serious concern for the senior senator, whom he considered a mentor. Kennedy rallied and was released from the hospital the next day. But by that summer, his brain tumor had spread, and on August 25th, he died at his home in Hyannisport. Mary Jo Kopechny had become so inspired by President John F. Kennedy's Ask Not What Your Country Can Do For You speech that she became active in the fight for civil rights. Her tireless work for this cause led her to work for Bobby Kennedy's campaign. All who knew her described her as a bright talent with a fierce dedication to bettering the lives of others. It was a tragedy that a young woman with so much promise never had a chance to fulfill her destiny. Mary Jo's parents received about $150,000 from Kennedy's insurance company and Ted Kennedy himself. Joseph Kopechny died in 2003 and Gwen Kopechny in 2007. Two of Mary Jo's family members self-published a book about her life in 2015 titled Our Mary Jo. Author William Cachetis spent more than a decade researching Mary Jo's life and death. His book, Before Chappaquiddick, The Untold Story of Mary Jo Kopechny, was published in 2020. In 2017, the film Chappaquiddick was released in theaters. It starred Kate Mara as Mary Jo Kopechny. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. Thanks so much for your patience and allowing me a few extra days to get this episode out to you. I hope you enjoyed it. This is your last call for tickets to attend CrimeCon in London. It will be held on September 25th and 26th, and I'll be there to meet you on Podcast Row. Also, just announced, I'll be participating in a live show with Dr. Shoham Das, forensic psychiatrist and the host of A Psyched for Sore Minds. You can find his show on YouTube or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're attending CrimeCon in London, make sure to put our live show on your schedule and come join us. 
For more information and to get tickets, go to crimecon.co.uk and use my promo code onceupon21 for 10% off your registration. Patreon members can access bonus content including more information on the Doris Duke case, as well as an extra episode of the series Getting Away With Murder. For more information and to become a member, go to patreon.com slash onceuponacrime. Thanks. You can also interact with me on social media. Once Upon a Crime is on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and even Pinterest. For links to all our social media, go to our website, truecrimepodcast.com, and click on the icons at the top of the homepage. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Special thanks to Olivia Lee for her help in researching this episode. Until next time, be good to one another.